Strange Phenomena now has a Patreon page. If you would like to support the show, then you can visit patreon.com slash katebushpodcast to see what wonderful rewards we're offering for your support of the show. Thank you. And now, on with the show. I see the people watching. I see it working for them. And still I want to change Okay, remember. Okay, remember that we have just allowed half an hour to get into it and get out. everybody to a fourth season oh my goodness we are now on the fourth season of strange phenomena the music of kate bush which means we are now on the weirdly wonderful and my personal absolute favorite kate bush album the dreaming oh my god okay so i'm i'm excited also for like say hounds of love and the sensual world because those are two other albums that i really like as well but let me tell you because this is my favorite album i'm gonna just say it flat out right here i have not been more excited for an album season because like diving into these songs and talking about them with fans just really deconstructing them and of course that means i get to listen to the album even more as i'm like you know, going into these songs. Oh no, I have to listen to my favorite Kate Bush album all over again. Well, I'm just so excited to be talking about this album because oh my gosh, I love it. And the person I'm talking with this week 
for this album, loves this album just as much as I do. You will know her voice very well. It is none other than Zoe. She's been on the show many times before. We've not actually met in real life yet, but we have become good friends. We chat about Kate Bush. We chat about other music too, because we also have a lot of other shared musical tastes. A lot of stuff that doesn't get played here on the show ends up getting on the cutting room floor when we're talking about other music, but that's okay. But she's with me to talk about this album this week because this too is her absolute favorite Kate Bush album. And I know it's an absolute Kate Bush favorite Kate Bush album of any of you guys listening. And so without further ado here, I'm just going to get right into it. This is going to be a longer episode, but there is a lot to discuss. And so here we go. So, The Dreaming, wow, where are we going to start? Holy crap, because... Wow, wow, it's like, where do, you, where do you start with The Dreaming? It's a dream. It's I know, dream. <laughs> it is. It's a kind of dreaming, you could say. It is kind of like a waking nightmare slash fever mm. dream feeling. It really is. Like, it took me a while to get into this album, but once it did, like, it clicked, and it is the absolute favorite, so there you go. And that's funny because for me, I have the opposite reaction. Like we'll talk about more later, but I think it's because I was just used to very strange music. Mm-hmm. That it was when I basically what I did was when I first heard of her, got into her, I just listened to all her albums chronologically, and this was always the one that that, that clicked with me the most. But I think it's because I had like a high tolerance for noise and strangeness and all of that. And it's interesting because it made me realize how much music that I had heard before was actually completely indebted to Dreaming. Like, I was a big Bjork fan, and she always cites Dreaming as one of her favorite albums. And it's like, in retrospect, I can see so much influence. But, like, because I had been listening to a lot of Bjork before ever listening to Dreaming, it made my tolerance high. Yeah. I mean, high. (laughs) When I was getting into the Dreaming, I was getting into Tori Amos and Boys for Pele, and, Mm -hmm. like... Of the two of those, the only one I still listen to on an active basis is The Dreaming, whereas Voice for Paley, yeah, I I got into, because I got into Tori and Kate at the same time in, like, late 2005, so this was early college. Yeah, I know so many Tori fans who, like, the album of hers. So I like, know. And yet, my favorite album of Tori's... Like, version of The Dreaming. Yeah, and it, it is, and actually, like, the two of, in, in, the, in the, the respect of, like, the Dreaming and Boys for Pele, they are like the, the circumstances surrounding that album are very similar because it was the first time that these women had produced their own music. And from then on, like they were the only producers on their album. Yeah. Like I know uh, the for the album after Boys for Pele, um, Tori got her own, built up her own studio at her house and that's where she records things. She always records things oh, in England. God. That redhead woman who steals from everything from Kate. Oh, even even. Oh, I know. Like, what artist would not want to like build her own studio? <laughs> I know. It's, no, it's not original at all. She stole everything from Kate. Everything. Oh my God, this! I remember first when I first listened to this. Yeah, it, it freaked me out. I put this on my iPod to listen to, and I'd I had heard I got this at the same time as Boys for Pele, and I had heard that this album was like really artsy, and you have to kind of to sit with it for a bit. I went, okay, well, I'm gonna buy this and see what happens. Okay, well, we'll I'm gonna load it up on the iPod and see what happens. And right. I remember listening to it on my dorm bed. And being like, okay, like the first two tracks, I went, okay, this is, it's a little bit strange, but 
um, okay, I can get, kind of get into this. And then it got to pull out the pin. And boy, that song freaked me out. Mm. I was not expecting the raw screams in there. And so oh, it took me a while to really... you listened to her work chronologically, right? I, I see, honestly, I skipped around. Oh, okay. I was going to say, those, the raw screaming would be especially startling if you went chronologically. I mean, the only kind of thing from the dreaming I'd heard up to that point was anything on the whole story. So basically, mm-hmm. the dreaming title track. Mm-hmm. Everything, oh, and Sat in Your Lap. Like, I knew those two, and I, but I didn't, I had no idea what to expect <laughs> with the dreaming, except everybody said, oh, this is kind of like artsy, it might take a bit to get into it. And I remember being really freaked out by Pull Out the Pin, but I went, okay, well, I'm going to keep going with this because this, I think this is just going to take time. And I sat with it enough that it, it just clicked one day. I can't even tell you like what day it was or anything, but it, one day it just, it clicked with me and it's, it's just that the fact that she even put this out, that EMI was willing to give her back this album because they didn't find anything commercial in it and she put it out anyway I'm like you know what I give you so much props for doing this thank you for doing Mm. this (laughs) for doing your own thing for daring to do your own thing and be distinctive and that inspires me a lot to just be like you know what just go on out there and and just own it. And she owns it in this album. She pushes herself to the absolute limit. And she just goes there and she just hopes that we're going to go with her. Actually, she doesn't even care if we're going to go with her. She's like, nope, this is where I'm going. If you're going with me, that's cool. And if not, eh, whatever. But in a more like this fits me way. Not like mm-hmm. it was very, it wasn't discordant with my personality. It just felt, this album just felt like me. So I listened to it and I loved it. But like I... I had heard that this was her quote-unquote most experimental and weirdest album. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I know this is going to be the one I like the most. And I did. Um, and it's funny because Never Forever is my second favorite, and that one definitely grew on me more and more to the point where I almost like as much as the dreaming. Me and too. the thing is, I actually listen to Never Forever way more often, but that's because it kind of has a song for every mood, and the song just vary a lot in style and everything, whereas with the dreaming, it's such a mood piece. And you really have, for at least for me, I feel like I do have to be in a certain mindset to listen to it. Um, mm-hmm. So even though I've technically listened to Never Forever more, this is my favorite, but they are close. Um, but yeah, I feel like this album was kind of almost made for me in certain ways. Like I, it's hard. So basically the type of music that I like, I don't like when people are like, what kind of music do you like? I don't really have a straightforward answer. For me, it's really about world building music i like music that sounds like it's essentially creating its own universe basically like, as i was saying my threshold for weirdness in music was kind of high by the time i listened to the dreaming because like when i was um so i initially start like my favorite artist like along Kate since 2015 is miko um most people know her for being in the velvet underground feature on the first mm-hmm. album but she made a series but she has three well she has all her albums, her first album, Chelsea Girl, she didn't write any of the songs. And I do love it, but it's not her voice as an artist. Her albums after that, she wrote and composed all the music herself. And her music just, you really can't compare it to anything else. It kind of sounds like it would be the soundtrack to a movie set in the medieval plague. Um, like, it's, it reminds me of, like, 
if anyone listening here has watched the movie, The Seventh Seal, the Ingmar Bergman movie, it just kind of feels like it would be the background music in The Seventh Seal or something. Um, but but basically that, it's, it's been an album that's called, it's like one of the most dark albums of all time. So like, I was prepared for the dreaming. <laughs> um, so, and like, that was a favorite album of 15, The Marble Index. I guess because I was into, when I was like in high school, stuff like My Bloody Valentine, that was kind of like, layers of sound and layers of noise it didn't feel like that to me like this doesn't it's feel true. like this muddied piles of noise to me it feels like especially when you listen to it, if you have the luxury of listening to it on vinyl the layers of sound are all really distinct from one another and overlap with one another in really unique ways so it's not just like i think one of the misconceptions of the album and like in Under the Ivy, the book by Graham Thompson, mm-hmm. which is kind of a Kate biography, a bunch of people who worked with her are quoted as kind of saying they felt like, oh, she was just like throwing everything against the wall and see what stuck kind of feeling. Like um, Nick Launay, mm-hmm. who's engineer, he said, we were both kind of in the same place. I wonder what this does. So they were basically both like, they're just kind of experimenting with everything they can find. And it was like, oh, this is a cool toy. Let me see what this does. But I think that narrative gets a little distorted. I think they, I think they know what they were, they knew what they were doing. I think that's, I mean, this album is so self-assured. It doesn't sound messy at all. It really doesn't. Um, It is. Whereas if it was something where they were just like playing with every toy to see what it sounds like, it would sound messy. But yeah, so for me, this is my favorite album of hers and Tide is Marble Index, my favorite album of all time, because I like music, A, that is melodramatic. Like, mm-hmm. I don't that's chill. It needs mm-hmm. to have, like, drama. I yeah. need drama. And, um, and two, it just transports you to another place and creates its own world. So it's interesting to me, because a lot of people, like, I remember, uh, I've just when I've played songs from this reveal before, I've had people say it sounds very 80s. But I think it kind of sounds like it's removed from space and time entirely. Almost, it reminds me of in the white dress while during high studio, the superior one. Um, she, I, what I, the reason I think it's the superior one is because I like how she kind of in this black vortex removed from all time and space. And that's what mm. this album feels like to me. I feel like it could have been made like two years ago or when it was made. Um, yeah, so what, definitely yeah. I agree with you about that with, with how it it does feel, the dreaming does feel like something that could have been made modern because like so many of the techniques that she used on this album, like the, oh, the God, the effects on her voice are very modern, like in Leave It Open mm-hmm. when she has a with, There's like, it's it's a flanger, yeah, like, she has like a, like Leave It Open is basically like early auto-tune it really is and and actually on that like her her voice has what's called a flanger and when i get to leave it open i'll talk about like okay what is a flanger what does it do to the sound and how it manipulates it but it's a really cool effect that i've even used on my own music like in the background for like getting some kind of creepy sounding stuff but god the vocal effects on this are very very modern and it's a lot of like the production itself is very it almost feels cut and paste at points, but that's because these this was not an album that was meant to be played 
with a group of musicians jamming in the same room. This is, okay, I'm going to bring in this guy here because he's really good at this part. I'm going to bring in this other guy for this other part on uh, the chorus of this song because he would be good at this other part on this other instrument. Like it's a lot of, uh, Graham Thompson called it painterly overdubs. And so Mm -hmm. that's what it feels like. Like she's bringing in different people who have particular strengths for a particular part of the song. Unlike what she was doing before this, especially like her first two albums where she was on the piano playing around and people were kind of jumping in around her and she didn't have Mm -hmm. a lot of control over how the overall sound was because that was up to the producer. Whereas, but yeah, this one is, is just, it's very modern in the way it's produced. And I think that's why it sounds still sounds like it could have been made yesterday because it's actually a mm-hmm. common thing these days for, for people to just you bring in a particular person for this part because he plays this synth part and it sounds like this. And exactly. Yeah. It's, it is a very modern way of doing things. And you know, there, there's some quotes from under the Ivy and other stuff we can talk about that where she was bringing in people and they're like, okay, um, she's telling us to play with the particular feeling. What? Huh? <laughs> yeah. What you're saying also reminds me of something very important about this album, which is that in the liner notes, um, it says this album is meant to be played loud. Yes. And I always play it loud. <laughs> you have to. You have mm-hmm. to. It's, very much. It's, it's, it's like, I always call it the original Screamo album. It needs to be <laughs> Um, I can see that. You definitely need to. And yeah, and what you were saying in terms of like the way that it's how it sounds contemporary in terms of production, I think a big reason for that, and one of the things that really fascinates me about this album, is because the way it was produced was based, so her previous album, she kind of started out, and you can kind of tell based on her demos, um, which were then, which were the basis for a lot of her earliest work, and then this album doesn't have any demos. You can tell that she basically thought of like the words and melody first and then built the song around that. Mm-hmm. Now, for the dreaming, she took a very different approach. So what I'm really interested in and what I think makes this album sound so fresh and engaging is that her process for crafting the album was based on starting with the beats and the rhythm and then focusing on everything else. Which mm-hmm. I think in like if you listen to the radio now, the majority of music you hear is the focus is essentially on the beat and everything comes after that. Yeah, and you get a lot of what's called top lining now, which is like somebody comes up with the beat and mm-hmm. maybe some chords or they have an interesting chord progression and then you come up with words over it and they actually have like people who now who listen to stuff like that and like they just kind of hum or come up with something possible to go over it that's called top lining and yeah that's, that's something we do so much of now and but she was starting a lot of these and i don't think that yeah i don't think kate gets enough credit for oh actually not doing that and all. like that's i think a reason why i think in terms of this production style is a reason why she's actually been really popular with hip-hop artists there's a an article people listening to google called like sometimes like times that kate bush changed the rap game and a lot of hip-hop artists and rap artists have been inspired by her and I think that it's because of her focus on beats and also on sampling um that has proved really influential for that genre um and yeah and I think that it's interesting as we were saying about the reusing these things like there was that I don't know the original but there's 
that Beyonce song, you know, who runs the world girl, the world girls, but it's using this beat that's been used like a thousand, like there's like th- that year that it came out, there were like 20 songs that had the exact same. <laughs> and it was like a, but it was like a popular, like, no, and also like when I was in middle school, there's a song called move your body by Nina sky. <laughs> Good song. Throwback. Wow. I haven't heard that a lot. And like, but like that, there was this trend where the, the bathroom track of that was used for like a ton of different songs. So it's interesting how like that I feel like this is a big maybe it's a shift that's also a just a thing that's typical of the eighties in general was a shift to rhythm as like mm-hmm. as opposed to starting with words and melody. But she definitely does not lose the melody or, or the words or anything. It's just interesting that it's on the record that this was the first time that she'd ever made an album in this style. And um she didn't really ever go back to her old style until 50 words for snow and she's on the record of saying that so like that was the first time that i sat down and wrote things at my piano to start making an album so um yeah and also with this so album, really a game changer. yeah and and also with this album um i i always think of uh in terms of especially the sampling because within the individual songs like uh she mic'd up a car door slamming for that slamming sound in the title track. And there's also all sorts of, Oh, and also uh, like the woo woo for like the, the bamboo reeds that her brother and uh, one of the other band members was swinging around for sat in your lab. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many different little sounds that are sampled and there was just, and some of the synth pop I still listen to from the eighties, especially um, something like construction time again by Depeche mode. Like, they did a lot of that kind of sampling. Like, they would just go out. They actually went out to an industrial area and just mic'd up themselves hitting things, and they used that in songs. Mm. And it was just seemed to be this kind of explosion of, oh, my gosh, we can record random sounds and put them in songs. You'll never – nobody will ever guess what sound this is. And I think right. really – I think that she especially – Help to pioneer that. Yeah, and like so many reviews from the time I was reading, like commentary from the time I was reading, because just dismissing it, just saying, oh, she's female Peter Gabriel, or whatever. But no, she's doing something very, I mean, I because they were both doing that, but it doesn't, just why don't you call him male Kate Bush? Actually, I have, okay. been, I have um, described him as that sometimes. <laughs> Deserved. I mean, yeah. not that he's a bad person or anything, but. Might as well. If you're going to call her female creator Gabriel, goes both ways. <laughs> mm, definitely. <laughs> but especially with Americans, like a lot. Unfortunately, I've had to do that. Some like sometimes, since Americans aren't familiar with her work, I'll kind of be like, I'll have to kind of say like it's kind of like Peter Gabriel, but like a woman. I, I which I hate. It makes me want to ah, but mm-hmm. yeah, but America. From Record Magazine, January 1983, by Nick Burton. Kate Bush shouldn't be an unknown quantity very much longer. The Dreaming is her masterpiece, a perfect blend of romantic, poetic imagery and daring musical approach. Bush's ace in the hole is her ability to fuse differing musical influences, jazz, classical folk, and nestle them comfortably within the boundaries of conventional pop songwriting. Each cut has a unique life of its own, from the majestic waltz, of suspended in Gatha to the jerky Peter Gabriel-ish title track, Bush shifts styles without sacrificing focus of mood. So why is this perhaps the most fascinating female vocalist you've never heard? 
Maybe it's because her previous domestic release, The Kick Inside, came way back in 1978 and failed to ignite here as it did in Bush's native England, where it was bolstered by a number one single, The Plaintive Haunting Wuthering Heights. Nevertheless, whenever my local shop got imports of her LPs, Lionheart and Never Forever, they were gone in a flash. So she has a following, but her cult artist status is ill-deserved. Bush has the dramatic edge, quirkiness, and delicacy of Bowie in his hunky-dory period. The eclectic, almost Baroque curiosity of a Peter Gabriel. A simply amazing voice that allows her to be alternately childlike and sensuously forceful, and a subtle allure all her own. Beyond this, she's one of the few active female rock artists who performs, composes, and produces all her own material. In addition to having a natural instinct for synthesizers and the taste to employ them effectively without being bombastic or florid, Bush also manages to be as terse and tough-minded as any male without sacrificing femininity. And her craftsmanship is atmospheric and effortlessly cool. In other words, she's the only female rocker out there doing anything original or experimental in contemporary pop. What's pending? Stardom, one hopes. Kate Bush deserves it. She doesn't even care if we're going to go with her. She's like, nope, this is where I'm going. If you're going with me, that's cool. And if not, eh, whatever. <laughs> See you guys later. I mean, one of my favorite posts of hers from this era is, let me find it, from her, from a really good interview she has in, you can find YouTube with, with a music critic named, I'm not going to pronounce his last name right, Paul Gambaccini. Yeah, it's oh Paul Gambaccini. Where she says, she says, the direction I, well, she says it so sweetly with that pure voice of hers. I can't, you know. <laughs> oh, anyways, I feel like when I, sometimes when I, when I sing her songs, I automatically go into British accent. I feel like sometimes when I quote her, I automatically go in, so please don't let me do that. But she says, the direction I'm going in, going with in my art is the way I want to go. Because for me, it's a little bit deeper. It's got more meaning. But of course, that won't be so widely accepted. And that's mm. one of my favorite quotes ever. Um but the thing is, it's not like she was doing super... And it's funny because then she goes on to say, maybe it's not as poppy. But I'm like, you weren't really doing pop before. I mean, as no. we talked about a lot, like on Lionheart, that's not a pop... That's basically a musical theater album. And then um, you always described Never Forever as essentially a world music album. Mm-hmm. And Breathing, is, which was a single, is not a pop song at all. Mm-hmm. So even though it is a departure and less poppy, she already was not making traditional pop in any sense. You do seem to be taking ever more control of the range of your career. You've always had the prime input, but on your current album, you are the writer, the vocalist, the keyboard player, the producer, and the arranger. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is very much a personal vision. Are you afraid that by not bouncing off too many other people, you might lose touch with the audience? Yes, I think that does scare me, but it doesn't worry me at the moment because although I'm taking control of a lot of things, I'm still working with other people. You always depend on the other people in the team that are very much a part of what you're doing. And I think um, hopefully if you work with people that are honest enough, um, you can rely still on their feedback and, and let their ideas in and out and hopefully not suffer from too much indulgence. But of course it's a problem, yeah. When we did a radio program for Christmas for Radio 1 about your favorite records, I'm sure that many people were surprised to hear how few conventional pop tunes were in there. You had a lot of Irish folk melodies, African songs, songs with unusual instruments. And I therefore thought that when you really did take full control of your career, there would be a lot of 
various surprises for people which they may not find actually commercial. And I think that's what happened on the latest single, The Dreaming, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's not really a commercial song at all. Um, and I think that's rather lovely that you could see, you know, from that, that program that we did, you know, perhaps the direction I was going in. And from my point of view, that program was fantastic to get, you know, all those songs played. I recall you had some whaling songs, so I'm waiting for your uh, <laughs> number about Orca. Yeah, well. yeah, sea shanties would be great. But I think that's the problem too, because the direction I'm going in with my art is the way I want to go, because for me, it's, it's a little bit deeper, it's got more meaning, it's, um, it's not so poppy, I suppose. But of course, um, maybe that won't be so widely accepted, especially in the singles chart, where it seems that things do have to be obvious, really, to stand a good chance of getting places. And that was because, see, that was never part of her makeup in the first place, because it was my impression mm -hmm. that when they signed her, that they were they were going to have her more as an album artist. Like, hey, this is they somebody were, yeah. who you have to listen to the whole album to get the whole thing. And she just just by some by a really awesome fluke that her music became top 10 hits. And so perhaps after a while, her her record company, EMI, went okay, you need to keep churning out the the hits. And for them to expect her to come up with a top 40 song is like, um, guys, that's not why you signed her. That was not part of her makeup in the first place. You realize that, right? <laughs> yeah, even something like, wow, that was a top 40 song. Honestly, doesn't really sound like it would be. No, but it really it was doesn't. 70. So it's interesting because her first I mean, like, she, what made her a success was Wuthering Heights, which the novel is a pure, unadulterated expression of rage, mm -hmm. essentially. Rage and pitch black darkness. Kind of what the dreaming is. I mean, I don't think it's pure darkness. I think, for example, like, I'll say, or maybe I'll just say it now, but I think that the manifesto for this album are the lines from Night of the Swallow that say, give me a break, oh, let me try, give me something to show for my miserable life, give me something to take, would you break even my wings just like a swallow? I think that song, like, some very woke individuals call it the centerpiece of this album, my favorite song of hers of all time, mm -hmm. and, um, <laughs> and basically this whole point of that song is about, free is about freedom, right? So I think, right. That's, I think this album is, it's, I think a lot of people interpret it as an expression of rage but really it's an expression of freedom and as is emily bronte's Wuthering heights so it's just like, and they were born the same day a few hundred years apart so i think it's just a nice continuity of really interesting artists it, creating these expressions of pure unadulterated freedom that gets often misinterpreted as just noise or just rage. And I know so many people who hate Book Wuthering Heights because they're like, everyone in it's just mean. And I'm, I think that's the point of the book. It's supposed to be a book about basically the darkest parts of humanity. And so, like, it's not a love story. It's actually a hate story. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like about it so much. I actually read the book as a comment. I think it's hilarious. Like, there's a, there's a line in it, um, my favorite line in the whole book, where there's something, like, it's a throwaway line, but they're like, Yada yada yada, and Harrodin was hanging a rabbit. Like, okay, <laughs> he's hanging animals. Okay, um, but like, I like that. It's interesting. You have these artists who are just creating something that feels like it's from a raw nerve, you know, and um, and you don't hear that often from artists of any gender. 
but especially not women. And I think the way this album has been received and perceived and misperceived is kind of similar to the ways in which Wuthering Heights has the novel, even though nothing on this sounds like the song Wuthering Heights. But anyways, Emily Bronte, Kate Bush, like a connection. And I'm glad that, and yet another reason it's a shame that Emily Bronte died before she could write another book, because maybe she, if she, if that was her first, like, like people are like, you know, Kate Bush, Wuthering Heights, what of her single, what will come next? Imagine what else we would have gotten. But anyways, for Emily Bronte, email hours are over now. From Smash Hits, September 16, 1982. Self-produced and more than a year in the making, The Dreaming is Kate's stab at a major piece of work. The sound, best described as ethno-slash-operatic, relies on drums being flung to the fore and many a bizarre studio effect being employed to heighten the drama, no lack of drama. Kate's cat-like vocals, varying between sugar and spit, edge perilously close to parody much of the time, but the whole effort is so full-blooded and carefully wrought that she gets away with it. It's good to see someone go over the top and come back in one piece. This was basically a year and a half in the making. So she started recording this between uh, September 1980 and May 1982. So it was like she went... So long, gosh. Oh, really? Gosh, can you believe it took a year and a half? Can, could they? Could her fans be pressured to wait any longer for another album? I know, right? <sighs> All the reviews like this took so long to make. I'm like, hold your beer. <laughs> exactly. So it's not like long after. So I mean, not long after Never Forever, she she went from Never Forever right into recording this. Well, I've been under the idea that she actually felt kind of like a dry felt for a bit. And then what happened was that she saw Stevie Wonder perform live. Oh, that is and true. that is what sparked her inspiration to like that new laugh, which then she says, like, from there, I ended up writing a ton of songs. Mm-hmm. And what I found interesting was that she said she wrote 20 songs for the album, or there were originally 20. I'm like, where are the rest? I want them. I, want I them. know. But, but so what she says is that. Uh, is that she initially had this burst of creativity where she wrote a lot of songs, but then it was everything else that took so long. Mm-hmm. Which she, in considering the way that she started recording on this album, like we've talked about, where she was basically using people, a particular person for a particular part, that it's no wonder it took a while to do. See, she recorded this at two different studios. It was Abbey Road and Townhouse Studios, and so she was using their space, their facilities, their people, their time. And it's it's honestly no wonder that after the dreaming, she went into making her own studio at her mm-hmm. own house. Because right. recording by, because you typically get these studios, you record by the hour. And man, that shit's expensive. <laughs> yeah, apparently, like what I keep, what a lot of stuff I read about this album constantly says how it like, she was like, this may be broke. <laughs> hmm I can believe it. I mean, because you're, you're hiring the producers, you're hiring the engineers, you got your musicians, you're using the equipment, and she's got the, the Fairlight CMI that she's using on there, too, and that's expensive as well. And ooh, Very. But it was worth it. But I, I, she bought it for this album, and it was worth the investment because she uh-huh. used it for this and her 
subsequent work. So yeah, that's it's interesting. There's my favorite interview with hers. My favorite record, like T, like live interview with hers, is one from 1980s called "Profiles in Rock." Kate Bush. It's on YouTube. It's one of the questions intro asks is like about money, and she's like, "Really, the only thing that I see valuable about making money is using it for stuff to use for my music." And mm-hmm. so this is a perfect example of that. Whereas most people will be like, "Yeah, I'm on that Mercedes." Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, I would, I'm like, yeah, I'm a personal trainer, but you know. How important are material things to you? And do you enjoy having money? I think I've just started enjoying money, actually, like really recently. Um, it's something I'm not being aware of either, really, because uh, the money is something that you don't see. You just know it, that it's there because you've earned it. What it's good for is being able to channel it back into what you're using it for so that you can do things better. You can afford to do um, more things in your show. You can have great videos. You can make good albums. You know, you need money for these things. I don't think a lot of people don't realize how much the artist will sometimes put financially into what they're doing. And often they think it's the company that's paying for everything. And in a lot of cases, it's not. It's the artist's personal money that's going into it. And that's what I like to do. I like to put it into machines, equipment, toys, albums. That, so it's working in a, a big sort of recycling thing where what it's earning is then helping it to become better. And that's how I like to think of money being used. It's very useful. But I'd like to think that I don't depend on it. Uh, a lot of things I do, do, like an album. Without money, I wouldn't be able to record an album. But I would still be able to write the songs again. Um, but, you know, there is something great about making an album. So this was released in the UK on EMI on September 13th, 1982. It entered the UK charts at number three on the week of the September the 19th. And it charted pretty well in a lot of countries. It went to number five in the Netherlands, went to number eight in France. Uh, like I said, UK number three. Did, go to no- did end up at 157 in the U.S., um, probably most on imports. Went to number 22 in Australia, number 12 in Norway. Uh, apparently only spent 10 weeks on the charts in the UK. So it, it had the initial, ooh, yay, new album, yay, and then kind of dropped off a bit. Uh, the last time it even appeared on the chart uh, was at number 85 on the week of November 21st to the 27th, 1982. So. What's interesting is when you mentioned America, is that actually this album, even though it was less of a commercial success in the UK, was a, actually brought her a lot more exposure in America than she mm-hmm. had, or the United States, I'd say, because there's other parts of North America, the, um, that, that brought her more exposure in the United States than she previously had. I think because it was so experimental and different um so she kind of became known as what's called like a quote-unquote college artist Mm -hmm. like played on college radio but this was the album like if you read about like american writing about her americans talking about her this was kind of like the one that was her breakthrough for america which is funny considering that it was considered her like her flop album in the uk for lack of a better phrase. But for Americans, this is what, like a lot, I, a lot of American fans who became fans around that time, whose like, stories I've read and stuff have said like, yeah, I first heard of her when The Dreaming came out and then I went backwards. Mm-hmm. And actually there's a guy I ended up talking, I 
who's going to be on uh, next week's episode, who uh, Craig Houston, who whose first exposure to Kate Bush was this album. And yeah, he's got a really cool story about uh, how Sad in Your Life was the very first Kate Bush song he ever heard. And he got into her from the dreaming and then worked his way backwards. From Cream, March 1983. Kate Bush, The Dreaming, EMI. Pigeonholing this internationally popular English songstress has been about as possible in the past as hearing her on American radio, Zip. But I think I've got a handle on her sound now. Imagine a cross between Stevie Nicks, Joni Mitchell, Nina Hagen, and Martha Davis, who's listened to a lot of Peter Gabriel and, uh, doesn't help much, huh? Okay, would you go for a cute, talented eccentric? I would. Occasionally, her musical ambitions get the better of her, but no one who closes an album braying like a donkey can be accused of being too pretentious, now can they? M.D. Michael Davis I, for those of you who don't know this, because I've mentioned in other articles, I have professionally impersonated Kate Bush. I cannot sing, but I've memorized a lot of her dance routines and, like, Let's think and perform them. Well, I haven't, I haven't for a while, actually, but I used to. And, like, the, at one place where I did it, the guys who were hosting, like, this Kate Bush theme party told me, it, like, they first heard of her by seeing on, like, this one, like, VH1 alternative channel, the Sat in Your Lap video. I'm like, I'm all the videos to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, we can talk about the videos for the albums on this song later, but that video oh, yeah. in particular is, oh, epic. Oh, I love it so much. Everything about it. Despite the record company saying that this was an uncommercial album and almost returning the album to her, they did issue five singles. The most successful was um, the one for the video you love, Side in Your Lap. That went to number 11. I think part of that, too, is because it was released like a year before the album was. She basically Mm -hmm. released it early as like a sneak preview she just was like so excited about what she was doing but the rest the actual album didn't come out for another year or so i believe mm-hmm. yeah so and i think that, that i find that interesting like maybe the public was just like so hungry for new kate bush stuff they were like we'll eat it up even though it's weird okay well probably what happened was that she didn't expect that the dreaming was going to take as long as it did yeah i yeah. bet that that's what it was because yeah i mean side in your lap yeah. was released fairly quickly in 1981 and then the others took her a little bit longer to do like uh the title track only got to number 48 in the uk there goes a tenor didn't even chart night of the swallow did not chart either and suspended in gaffo was you know mildly successful in continental europe but was not released as a single in the uk had a video night of the swallow yeah night of the swallow was only released as a single in ireland and i think Looking back, I think, I mean, I really like the Hill track. Absolutely terrible choice for a single. I mean, to be fair, when you listen to this mm. album, there is not a song that you listen to and you think, single. So no. I should be like, well, this is the title track. We'll make it a single. Um, but I th- I always wonder if, had she made Suspended and Gaffa, the single after Sat in Your Lap, would it have been more successful? Because even though Suspended and Gaffa is extremely damn weird, She's not like doing this fake Australian accent, you know. True. And I, it's funny. I remember actually 
after another tape push impersonation performance I did, I was staying with in Philly. I stayed with some friends and I was playing, I was doing, um, I performed moving there. But then when I went to their apartment, they were like, do more. So I was performing suspended in Gaza and they were, they loved her voice. They were, and it's funny because even though you called her vocal, I'm like, I know that's not, even though her vocals are amazing on that song, I probably take it for granted. I never thought of that as one of her great vocal songs. I remember these girls I was with were like, her voice is so amazing. They heard Spend in Gaza. So I wonder if they had used that, it would have been more accessible because her voice is what really made her a star and so unique. And so I think it being so distorted on the title track was a huge reason why it wasn't a good choice for a thing for a single. Because I can understand why she manipulated her voice the way she did in the in the title track, but I agree with you that it because of the way she was using her voice and the effects on it, it, it is very difficult to understand what she's saying. And it's not, I don't think it's as immediate as something like Suspended in Gaffa, which was one of the right. first, like There Goes a Tenor, that I latched onto when I got into the dreaming. Because they right. were just yeah. the most accessible. I mean, it's still strange. Like you were saying, like, it's I still was, strange, but... Yeah, I mean, there's nothing on this album, as I said, where we're like, yeah, top 10. But um, but I think it's also like some... I remember reading... I don't remember who was describing her, the quality of her voice on the title track as being nasally. And I think, which doesn't... Which it normally isn't. So I think that is a huge turnoff for a lot of people and, and her fans. But speaking of her fans, I think something that's really important to point out and really interesting is that amongst like hardcore fans that I know, can you universally say this is their favorite album of hers? So I just wanted to point that out. I think that's really interesting because so many people are like, oh yeah, that's like the weird one that we are not going to talk about very much. But mm-hmm. it's pretty universally beloved amongst actual fans. It and really amongst, oh, here, I go, here I go again. Amongst the boring, straight, white male music critics <laughs> dominate the world. Oh, you're all sick of me hearing me say this. Um, they, But it's I true! Them, it is. Um, like, although the uh, review that I shall not drop a... I will not say what website it's from because they don't deserve clicks because they deserve money from clicks, but the review that rated The Dreaming as one of the lowest among her albums only just a few weeks ago... Um, which was written by a woman. I, I when someone told me about that, I immediately first asked, "Did a man write it?" He said, "No." Well, I, I was in shock. But anyways, the thing is, and I've actually learned your your podcast making less of a misandrist. Like there have been so many guys on your podcast, like straight dude, middle aged dudes, who are so appreciative of her work in such a meaningful and deep and way that don't objectify her at all. So. Shout, shout out to the good dudes out there. I know, man. Uh, we appreciate you. Like, for, in a lot of documentaries I've seen on her, they will barely even mention the dreaming. Um, and so, and it's so weird. So, for example, um, there's this one special called, it's not the BBC, the Kate Bush story, but it's another one called, like, Kate Bush on the BBC. It basically has a collection of all like, of performances she's done on different BBC programs throughout the year. Um there is not one performance in the dream included, even though they could have included like the Raz, the Pazzer, or the Tenor, or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and yet they include like actual, like the actual music video for the sensual world. I'm like, why would you include the music video hmm. for something and not actual performances? It's just it's always getting overlooked in these retrospectives, and which is really or in the um, 
oh god again i don't want to actually name drop the review and make people read it because it doesn't deserve it but uh the new yorker profile account recently it brushed off the dreaming like pretty dismissively and just focused on other stuff and yeah felt i felt a certain way about that and a lot of people i think her a lot of her true fans feel a certain way about that but like um but it is interesting how this is such a fan favorite and yet mm-hmm. the actual mainstream media ignores it. <laughs> like, yeah. like maybe try listening to the actual fans when you're deciding what her best work is. I don't know. Maybe. From Melody Maker, September 11th, 1982, Kate Bush the Dreaming by Colin Irwin. Under the premise that the great British public instinctively turns its nose up at anything that's a little unexpected, or which doesn't meet its carefully coiffured preconceptions, then this album will be an overwhelming flop. People will be guided in their dismissive diagnosis, of course, by the all-wise radio producers who will flick quickly through it for the new man with the child in his eyes, fail to find it, assume Kate's gone off her trolley, and make a grab for the safety of Haircut 100. Reputedly two years in the making, the first album produced by Kate herself, no expense or musical craving spared. The result is mind-boggling. Even by the mannered eccentric standards she set herself, this is still an odd one. You may have thought Babushka and the wedding list on Never Forever are a little weird, then Get Out of My House and Houdini here are positively manic. Always an artist of extremes, Bush has allowed her highly theatrical imagination to run riot, indulging all her musical fantasies, following her rampant instincts, and layering this album with an astonishing array of shrieks and shudders. Initially, it is bewildering and not a little preposterous, but try to hang on through the twisted overkill and the historic fits, and there's much reward, if only in the sense of danger she constantly courts. Consider the options for a glamorous girl singer with an acute sense of melody. Consider that she's taken the riskiest, most uncommercial route, and consider whether this album should be regarded with patience and admiration, even when it occasionally slips right over the top. Two of its ingredients, Sat in Your Lap and The Dreaming, have already been issued as singles and sunk without a trace, which is not only significant but tragic. The Dreaming is the perfect example of the passion for percussive torrents that's overtaken her and the influence of African music? Question mark. Yet it's one of her more restrained vocal performances on the album where her dynamic singing is one of the prime features. Get Out of My House has her roaring and ranting like a caged lion, Leave It Open has her yelling like a demented Mina bird. Elsewhere on Houdini and All the Love, she'll break us in gently, even tenderly, before the fuse runs out and we reel in awe and amazement at the sheer power of her rage. There's only one even vaguely conventional track, the lively suspended in Gaffa, though there's something strangely disconcerting even about that, and the only light track is There Goes a Tenor, which is even mildly funny as Kate relates a tale of skullduggery with an exaggerated cockney swagger. The lyrics naturally are another thing altogether, and analysts would surely come up with an interesting conclusion for her obsession with lurid drama, so vivid and colorful it could be traditional balladry. There Goes a Tenor is about crime, Pull Out the Pin is a graphic account of terrorism and war, All the Love and Houdini blaze in one different aspect of death, the latter in a particularly complex but clever way. Personally, I reckon the girl watches too many B-movies. The epic track, though, the cornerstone of the album, is Night of the Swallow, which shows both her growing maturity as a writer and her arrival as an outstanding producer. 
another complicated song, surprise, surprise, it moves gracefully through many changing moods and patterns. It's a work of both beauty and anguish, poignancy and eeriness. These twists of moods are enhanced by the use of sublime Irish music. Liam O'Flynn and Donald Loney of Planksty, Sean Keane of the Chieftains, intersected with the rugged main action. Like most of the other tracks, I'm still not entirely sure what the hell's going on or what it's all about, but the puzzle's intriguing enough to entice you back until you unravel it. It's the sort of album that makes me want to kidnap the artist and demand the explanation and inspiration behind each track. If you're out there, Kate, do me a favor and give me a bell, huh? Yeah, so let's see the personnel on... So this is like, as what's really interesting, this is basically an album made by some very excited babies. <laughs> yeah, so obviously this is the first time, so that's the note that this is the first time that Kate is producing, she is in the, the, the driver's seat, basically, <laughs> saying, okay, this is what I want from this song. This is what, these are the people I need for this song. She is producing this thing. So this, this is, it, it's funny that I got into Boys for Paley at the same time as this album, because both of them were produced the first time that these great ladies had produced, started producing their albums, and that's what they would end up doing for the rest of their career. And she's got, obviously we got, We've got Kate doing the vocals and the piano. She's on the Fairlight. She's also and using and the the hee-haws, along with her brother doing that too. Um, she's playing the CS80, so she's playing a synthesizer for. Um, she's actually credited on um, "There Goes a Tenor" doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. She's got her brother Patty, of course. He is doing the bamboo stick. So whoo whoo for uh, "Sat in Your Lap." He's also playing mandolin and strings on Suspended in Gaffa. And he's the bull roarer on the title track, interestingly enough. Uh, I mean, everything he does is always would come with a footnote of interestingly enough. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. She's got Jeff Downs, who was playing the Fairlight CMI trumpet section on Sad in Your Lap. She had Jimmy Bain. Jimmy Bain played bass guitar on Sad in Your Lap. Leave it open and get out of my house. Usurping Mr. Palmer. And, well, I was getting to Mr. Palmer because he's next. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You know, you, know how, you know I have Del Palmer feeling. I know you do. So, Del Palmer was on, obviously he's on there. Not sexual feelings for anyone listening. Don't think that way. <laughs> he was bass guitar on There Goes a Tenor. Suspended in Gaffa, All the Love, and he also played fretless and eight-string bass on Night at the Swallow. And he is also on the album cover, which we'll get to with the blue As he'd love cover. to point out. I know. <laughs> uh, Preston Heyman is playing drums on Sign in Your Lap, Pull Out the Pin, Leave It Open, Get Out of My House, and also Sticks. He's also doing the bamboo sticks on Sign in Your Lap. Stuart Elliott is on drums and sticks and suspended in gaffa and percussion on All the Love. Dave Lawson is doing the sing clavier on There Goes a Tenor and suspended in gaffa. Brian Bath is on electric guitar. Um, the only time that electric guitar, one of the only times that electric guitar is used on this album is him on Pull Out the Pin. 
There is mm. some acoustic guitar on Leave It Open. I cannot hear it personally. Um, yeah, I was, gonna say, I, was, I actually thought you were going to say electric guitar and leave it open. Like, actually, there really, is. Like, don't get down. Well, there is electric guitar from uh, Smurf playing his guitar refrain in uh, Leave It Open and Get Out of My House. I could definitely hear it on that. Well, that da 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 and Get It Out of My House. Rolf Harris is on Didgeridoo. Mm, we got, we got our um, R. Kelly yeah. uh, Liam O'Flynn is doing the Penny Whistles and the Ilian Pipes on uh, your favorite, favorite song. And my favorite song on The Dreaming. Uh, same with Sean Keen. He's playing fiddle. Donald, uh, Donald Looney is on the bazooki. I hope I pronounced his name right. I hope so. On the same song, Night of the Swallow. And Herberhard Weber is on double bass in Houdini. There are other voices such as uh, Patty, Ian Berenson, Stuart Arnold, and Gary Hurst. So the last two, those were her backing dancers. They are on Sat in Your Lap. Patty Bush is also doing backing vocals on The Dreaming and Get Out of My House. David Gilmore, it's worth pointing out, David Gilmore is doing backing vocals on Pull Out the Pin. Percy Edwards takes care of the animal noises that you hear in the chorus of The Dreaming. There are crowd noises in uh, that song as well. So Gosfield Goers was uh, the guy who took care of that. There's a choir boy, Richard Thornton, in All the Love. And, oh, I know. And I actually really want to try and find him, too. I've not been able to find him. Right? Like, how did you get to sing this? You probably never even met her, though. It's probably a thing where it's like, oh, we're just going to, like, I know. Yeah, and actually a lot of duets have been recorded that way. Like, you have one person in one mm-hmm. studio, one end of the country, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, um, that's like song with Prince. Why Why should I love you? They never did that. They mm-hmm. sent people there. Yeah. Uh, Del Palmer is also the one saying Rosabelle Believe in Houdini. Very important. Very, yes. Uh, Gordon Farrell is saying Houdini, also in the same song. Um, Paul Hardiman is credited as Eeyore <laughs> for Get Out of My House. And Esmail Sheik is credited as drum talk for the same song. Yeah, that song's a lot going on. I think, yeah, in terms mm-hmm. of, like, people involved with making this album, the one who interests me the most is Nick Launay. Oh, he yes. He engineered this album. The engineer. And he was only 20 years old. Mm-hmm. 20 years old. And Kate Bush herself was 22 when they made this album together. So some quotes, what he said <laughs> about it, the experience. Um, which was a very fun experience for him. He said, it was really like the kids were in control. It was great. We were both kind of in the same place. I wonder what this does. Just me and her at the front, and at the front of the desk were two huge bars of Cadbury's milk chocolate and this huge bag of weed. Yeah, so man. they were just having fun. Experimenting. <laughs> and I, but I can say, this is like, I mean, it's very depressing for me as someone who is not 22 to know this album was made by a 20-year-old and a 22-year-old. But don't just miss young people, everyone. Um, I know. And and then Bri- then Paul Hardiman, who is Eeyore, also um, what well, he was the final engineer. Yep, he was the recording engineer at AdVision and Odyssey Studios. And also speaking of engineer, uh, we had Hayden Bendall, who is the engineer at the Abbey Road Studio sessions. Mm-hmm. There's also yeah, I like yeah. What were you say? Oh, just also there, um, the uh, the one who helped her out on Sat in Your Lap and a little bit of Get Out of My House is Hugh Charles Pagnum. 
And it is said in Under the Ivy that he had a less than desirable work experience with Kate because she wanted yeah. to just go and try oh, all sorts of stuff. And he was mean. That makes me sad. At least she managed to find other people to help her out. So, okay. <laughs> I know. Just like, I can, I can find the quotes. But basically, he was like, yeah, that was annoying. And she just speaks very politely and kindly of him. Like, that just shows her character. I don't know. Pretty much. There's a very important member of the personnel of this album. His name is my dad. Not not my actual father. Although my father did work with a lot of 80s musicians, British musicians. But um, I think it's been very important to bring up my dad's contributions to this album. My dad is a uh, character that Paul Hardiman, the final engineer, created wearing... This is from Under the Ivy. Hardiman created the character of my dad, which involves wearing a a bald ginger wig he bought at Wall Carnival stores in Caversham Road in Reading. At moments of crisis, my dad would arrive and don a pair of, I can't pronounce this word, polystyrene cuffs with the bottom. Oh, remote, polystyrene. Which, okay, thank you. And, um, and par- which basically were they used as sound-enhancing ear attachments, which when fitted over the wig, hmm, helped hmm. delineate the sound. So Hardiman said, in times of ear fatigue, which I can imagine making an album mm-hmm. meant to be played loud, you've had lots of, these helped enormously. I'm not making this up. They added focus to the section. Um, so, and also Paul Hardiman, who played, who did he, the hee-hawing, he says that it was obviously my dad singing the part of Eeyore. Um, so, when they wanted to be really freaky, they were my dad. <laughs> I love that anecdote. I think it's so fantastic. I just love that. Because they said, like, this was, album was just such hard work. They needed some levity. And my mm-hmm. dad brought the levity. Well, there's another quote somewhere in Under the Ivy, too. I've actually got the, the Kindle version over here in another tab that that it kind of felt like being being in the studio that it was like its own kind of little and like self-contained environment. There weren't a mm-hmm. lot of windows, not a lot of contact with the outside world. And it felt like it was like this own, their own little universe where they were creating this album and it had no relation to whatever else was going on outside. Wow. That's so interesting. Cause that's literally what I was saying about why I like the album because it feels mm-hmm. like its own little universe with no relation to anything else going on outside. It really um, does. Yeah, so that really encapsulates the album very well. Um, yeah, interesting. Especially speaking of that self-contained thing and kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about what immediately struck me so much about this album. Just what I love about it is that, as you say in Under the Ivy, the lyrics return again and again to conflict and claustrophobia, destruction and spite, battling inhibitions and barriers. There's just What I think is really special about this album is that she's known for, and you and I have talked a lot, in our episodes that we've done together about her story songs mm-hmm. and how they're basically like these little musical theater pieces that she's like a character speaking, but something that isn't, I pretty much never see discussed when I read about this album. Um, but I find it so fascinating is that it's an album of ideas and not just story songs. It's really an album that's about certain themes and like, mm-hmm. there are certain songs that don't tell a story at all. And I think part of that is based around the fact that she started with the rhythm and worked from there, as opposed to if you're starting with the words, everything will be about that. So yeah. for example, um, like Leave It Open being a perfect example. Leave It Open is about expanding the mind and consciousness. And it's really trippy. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, so it's not telling a story at all. 
I mean, it's tell, but it's, te- it's, it's their themes. It's telling, it's talking about themes, but it's not a character telling a story like most of her songs would be. Like, for example, you know, a song like another one we discussed, Hammer Horror, which is about a specific, an actor being haunted by his friends. So also, the, like, the first few songs, actually, like, the first, it's really only later in the album that become, we get more story songs. So it's really generally more, just I would call it an existential album with all different existential themes throughout the album, especially like the quest for spiritual advancement and, you know, mm-hmm. the conflict and claustrophobia, destruction of light, and flight, as I said, with my swallow, like, I think, as I said, this whole album was about, liber- like, this is an album of liberation. I think it, as you said, it inspires you as an artist. Mm-hmm. I think it inspired a lot of people. Inspired Bjork, inspires a lot of people as artists. Um, inspired John Lydon, you know? So, mm-hmm. with that, you have, we have sat in your lap, which is about the pursuit of knowledge. And that's not, it's not, like, I feel like most of her songs would be, about like a character who goes to a bookstore to find something, you know, like a specific story. But this isn't. It's more as abstractly about the pursuit of knowledge. I'd like to be. A, I'd love to be a lawyer. I'd like to be a scholar, but I really can't be bothered. Yeah. This is my last message of grad school. Um, and then suspended in gaffas is about trying to find answers from an unavailable higher power, which is really profound. <laughs> really profound. I that song in particular, I did not know what she was saying for a while, mm-hmm. but um. But it's basically this kind of idea of facing a god that may or may not exist, which, uh, like, basically is the theme of every Ingmar Bergman movie, but she did it better here. Um, And then (laughs) All the Love is about, again, All the Love isn't a specific story, but it's about regret over not giving others what they needed, and also All the Love, which is what makes it the superior version of this woman's work absolutely quote me on that i don't care but and then even the story songs have these more broad existential themes so with for example houdini is about the power of love beyond death and then get out of my house is well i mean it's based on the shining but it's also very much about violation of privacy and crushing outside forces and then pull up so and also night of the swallow as i mentioned is about the need for, even the night swallow is very much a story song it's specifically mm-hmm. a dialogue between a man and a woman the woman the man is a smuggler the woman is telling him don't go on this flight and he's saying i'm gonna do it anyway yeah <laughs> and it's all liberation so the thing is even though it's a story song what it really comes down to is that liberation like i think even if you don't know the context for that their song you just hear it and you feel like you're soaring and it really is a, the whole song is a rallying cry for freedom so i know so kate and I've, we've talked about this before that kate is not your your typical singer songwriter who's going to sit there and bleed her heart out on the piano and be conf- quote-unquote confessional but i have to mm-hmm. wonder given what we're what you're you're talking about with all these existential crises that she's talking about or like in suspended in gaffa and sat in your lap that those are about like pursuit of something that may or may not exist and, and knowledge mm-hmm. i have to wonder if this is a if this album is a perfect example of her you of kate using things that are like affecting her or maybe some of her own feelings but putting up putting it through a character or through just some other medium so that she's distanced herself from it you know what i'm talking you know what i mean 
Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. I, that, I think you nailed like, it. Um, like, especially like with her talking about, yeah, like her talking about knowledge and feeling like, oh, am I going to get this? I'm not sure. Feels to me like it's her own fears of going out on her own <laughs> and mm-hmm. doing something completely like she that she's never done before and she's learning things and also like she loves to watch films so of course that's gonna if that's gonna influence her writing or she likes to watch documentaries and so that's and she's noticing the way people are treating each other that's where you get pull out the pin and um, there goes a tenor because she watches so many different movies and that move that song feels like an amalgamation of different crime movies of the last 70 years at this point because it's been over 30 years since it's been released what what spans out for me about this album is that she's channeling her her thoughts through somebody else and it's more than ever the technology has caught up with what she has had in mind since the beginning yeah and i think also this album being so heavily produced in a way could be been into therapist mode i think can be like a way also to kind of mask any type of confessional nature yes. like i'm going to distort this and put so many layers of sound over this and you're just that it just is a mood piece and you're not thinking it like about like the themes are i think very universal and very applicable to a lot of people but especially for her at this point in career as you're saying makes a lot of sense for her to be thinking and saying and i think that this is almost the closest we do have to confessional. Like a song like Leave It Open and Spending Gap are kind of the closest we do have to confessional works from her, although they're completely off kilter and not at mm. all considered. Like people, like people, when they think of confessional work, think of like Fiona Apple at the piano, you know, like it's, which is, mm-hmm. I'm not saying in a bad way at all. I'm a huge fan of her. Um, but I think like another good example, which I can talk, which I'll talk more about on the, episode for that album and also later in this episode I think a really good out example is get out of my house because during an interview that was an interview promoting dreaming she said the media just promoted me as a female body it's like I've had to prove I'm an artist in a female body and I very much even though get out of my house is on the record as a song about the shining I very much interpret it as a song about intrusion, especially intrusion upon a woman's body. And mm. which is literally the body is the house. And so I think that since at this point in her career, she still was not taken seriously as being someone to, besides, lack of a better term, tits and ass with a high voice. So I think that Get Out of My House is very much about that even if she isn't conscious of it. So like in Under the Ivy, Graham Thompson writes that it works as an indirect comment on the invasive nature of fame and mm-hmm. remains one of the most effective and disturbing examples. I wouldn't say disturbing, I'd say awesome. Examples of Bush dramatizing her id, giving living expression to her darkest fears and latent instincts. Then again, many people simply laughed, it, laughed when they heard it. Yeah. I think that that song is very much like the intrusion of fame. And like, I think, so maybe in her case, the intrusion of fame, but I think for a lot of women, a lot of women I notice really connect to that song, just in terms of like, your body is not, is like public domain. Like, no matter what you look like as a woman, you walk down the street and you get catcalled and someone's gonna say something about your appearance. 
your body is basically public property if you're a woman. Sometimes you just want to tell them, get out of my house or hee-haw. But, um, <laughs> but I think that that, so I think that this really relates to that, this period of career, even um, in Under the Ivy, there's an anecdote that frankly made me want to vomit, um, where she initially, so she did consider having some producers on this album. And one of the people she considered having was Tony Visconti, who's oh. with David Bowie. And so he talked about how when they met, they, he, well, he loved Lion. So at first I liked him because he's like, I love Lionheart so much that I wrote her a fan letter saying how much I liked it. So I'm like, you're good people. But then a year or so later, I received a phone call from her asking me to meet up with her to discuss working on a new album. <laughs> Before we met, I made a very specific astrological chart for her. Okay, Tony. I bet he mansplained it to her, too. I bet. And then he gave it to her over lunch in a restaurant. And then he, after lunch, they went to the studio. And he says, she played a track or two for me. Honestly, I can't remember a note. She was bent over, leaning on the back of a chair in front of the console. I was sitting behind her on the couch and, drum roll, All I can remember is the bush bums swaying in my face. I'm sure I love the music too. So that just goes to show how she was, that, that is how she was perceived. Mm-hmm. Even somebody who respected her music enough to write her a fan, who was such a well-respected figure in music and wrote her fan letter and genuinely did love Lionheart, reduced her to her butt and didn't even remember any, doesn't even remember anything about what, he played her, what she played for him. Just... That's all you need to know. <laughs> and they would never talk about a man like that. No, yeah. I was looking at the Peter Gabriel booty and why'd he come around me with an ass like that? Yeah. <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah, I know. The Bowie booty has more of a ring to it. I know. The album cover. Oh my goodness. Mm. The album cover. What do we got to say about I'm the album cover? Right now. I have it up. I have it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I'm, I'm lucky. So, you know, we get, we get some, we get things from relationships. We get to some, we lose them. One thing I got from my last one was that my ex got me a, uh, the first pressing. I found it randomly at a record store. I was like, if you find anything, Kate Bush, let me know. Find the first UK pressing of the dreaming on vinyl. So I don't even have, when I was my ex used to listen to it a lot on vinyl because my ex is a record player. I don't anymore, but I have it like right next to my bed. That and, I have that and the Marvel Index by Nico, my two favorite albums, right next to my bed. So I'm looking at them all the time. They're, or they're looking at me, I should say. Both albums have a woman who are kind of stare, who are like staring at you. So I'm like, okay, stop watching me, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, album cover. Del Palmer, Palmer's on it. Mm-hmm. Everyone's a different person. What I think is really cool about this is that it, not only does the album cover with her, she's dressed up like the, she's dressed up like Bess Houdini and mm-hmm. she's about to pass him the key, which you have to kind of zoom in a little bit, like sometimes to see it, but and he has the chains on as Houdini. Yeah. He's got the chains on and <laughs> you actually don't even see his face. You see hers. And so the yeah. immediate impression I get upon seeing this album cover Sorry, is, Sorry for laughing. It's just, I'm like, if we saw his face, we, we would see that fucking, sorry, we would see that mustache. So, thank God. <laughs> but what I like about the cover is that she is the one in control. Because when people usually talk about Houdini, they think usually of, obviously, 
the man. They don't think as much mm-hmm. about the wife. But she mm-hmm. not only has a song telling something for telling a story from uh, from Bess's point of view, but also she's the one running this show. She's well, the she, one. She hasn't changed it. She's got him changed. <laughs> she's grabbing his face. <laughs> You're like, she's the one in control here. She and she's got what she he's she's got what he needs so that she mm-hmm. can help him. And I even see like the passing of the key could also is also like she is giving us this album that has its own weird self-contained world. And she's going, okay, guys, here it is. Go and decipher it. You know, puzzle yeah, your way through that's it. Such an interpretation. Yee! And yeah, also, so I'm literally standing across from it and staring at it. And so one thing I really <laughs> like when I know when I see it is that it's sepia toned, but mm-hmm. the key in her mouth and her eyeshadow are colored gold. I actually wouldn't even know it's a key because her mouth covers the actual key part, so like it looks like a ring more. But it's just interesting how I love she matches the key in her eyeshadow, and that stands out, but the rest is all sepia tone. It's also just kind of, so that's a really great, just beautiful graphic design choice. I love this album cover. But what's real, something that's funny about it, though, is that she's playing Beth Houdini, but like so 80s. <laughs> like, oh. it's, it's anyone who owns the book Kate Inside the Rainbow, they have like the makeup and hair test for this, and like she's the biggest 80s hair ever. So it's just funny because it would have been kind of cool if she actually had dressed up like actually of like the pure like retro mm. thing. But anyways, but it's a great album. I like what's also interesting is her looking away from him. So on the internet, there are a few like drafts essentially in the cover that were photographs where she's looking at him. Yeah. But there's just something a lot more powerful of her looking away. I don't know. Just It's just more of a, it's a more captivating image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also worth pointing out that the photograph was done by her brother, John. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have more, because we published the book, Kate yep. by the Rainbow. So, yes, yeah, so if you have that book, and you can also oh, find a lot of them online, honestly, there's a lot of kind of like test shots for this. And there's one I actually like. I actually like it more than the real cover. It's on, let me find it. It's on, I have it right here. But it's like, Actually, in terms of what I was saying, like, oh, it'd be cool if she like went retro and actually pretended she was Beth Houdini. But um, there's one version where she basically doesn't have any hair or makeup, and she looks, she actually looks her age. She looks funny because that's the thing. Like with her hair and makeup done, she never, she always looks a lot older. Yeah, but she does. Without, you're like, oh, she actually is 1920. Okay, so it's on page 133 of Kate Inside the Rainbow. And she doesn't have, there's no hair and makeup situation going on. But I actually like it more. I just think it's more raw and interesting. Yeah, I would have liked to see that. Mm-hmm. But she, this is Kate Bush. She's like, if I do something, I get to be really, well, melodramatic about it. So I have to put on all the gold eyeshadow. And she does, in a lot of her interviews this period, she always wears a lot of gold eyeshadow. And I do too, so I'm inspired by that. I like it. <laughs> Well, I mean, okay, so speaking of, like, outfits, you have in the notes here, so we were talking about the album cover. <laughs> oh, my oh, gosh! So... Are talking about the world's the greatest outfit that ever existed? Yes, I'm talking about, like, the sweatpant kind of thing in her I'm a prima donna and okay. you. <laughs> Is that no, what you were talking about? about? 
this is obviously very important music scholarship <laughs> right here, but you cannot talk about the dream. As far as I'm concerned, you cannot talk about the dreaming without talking about this outfit. I literally have my calendar, September 14th, the dreaming outfit day. Because that was when she, that was the day where the photos were taken of her and that mm-hmm. outfit. I, I'm, can you tell me a little obsessed with Kate Bush? Anyways. Um, <laughs> so, so she... Again, it's just a shame that this can't be a visual podcast. There are times when, like, you really need a visual. But anyways, let me see what you can Google to find it. This is the... So... I'm looking at some of these. 1980... She wore the greatest outfit that any human has ever worn. Um, She's wearing a t-shirt that says... I'm looking at the reading release. I'm looking at Google Um, Images. And I've typed in... I know, right? I'm looking for Kate Bush Virgin Megastore 1982. Because it was the day after it got released. She was in Virgin Megastore... In Oxford Street in London, promoting oh, the dreaming. Hell, for anyone who's been to London. Oof. So yeah, was that September? 14th? I have not yet. Hmm. I have not been to London yet. Only Paris. That's the only major okay. European capital I've been to. Is Paris? Don't go to Oxford Street. Okay, so so if it's the day, so we said it was the day after it was released. Yep. So this was the day after it was released. It was released. So the dreaming was released on September. Yeah. So I literally, ha- yeah, I'm right. But I literally have in my calendar the dreaming outfit day. <laughs> <laughs> this was on September 14th, 1982, a very important moment in, in human history, fashion history, life history. So she's wearing a t-shirt that says, I am a prima donna, and you? Which apparently was kind of a joke, because everyone who ever has met her says she's the most down-to-earth person, but she, so apparently this was like a joke shirt. Then with that, she's wearing karate pants, which you can see in her um, interview on the Old Green Whistle Test. If you look up Kate Bush Old Green Whistle Test, you'll get two results. One from Hounds of Love era and one from the Dreaming era. You can very easily tell which is which. She's wearing those. And then because she, because that wasn't enough, she has to add high-heeled green velvet boots, mm-hmm. which you can see in her interview with Paul Gambaccini. <laughs> uh, this is my favorite outfit that ever existed. I, it's, it's just everything I love about her in an outfit. She's literally not giving a shit. About anything um <laughs> like we, especially considering this album this whole album is her just being like essentially the tagline of this album besides the night the less eloquent version night swallow out lyrics would be fuck i'm doing it anyway she got dressed in the dark didn't care um like also in the paul gambacini interview again she's wearing those 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 the green velvet boots with a moose sweater and a pink turtleneck under and then lipstick that matches the pink turtleneck it's her fat, she always looks like she got 1978 era. She has awesome style, like really ethereal. Something mm-hmm. happened, maybe Dell's influence, I don't know. She just started getting dressed in the dark, but it's delightful. It's wonderful. Like nothing beats like the onesie she wore at the, well, this beats it because it's the best thing ever. But like there was one, one of her fan conventions, I think 1991 more. She literally wore a gray snuggie. This woman is a fashion icon. I love her. Anyway, so that is a very important part of dreaming history. Yes, it is. You cannot talk about dreaming without talking about the outfit. I myself have the shirt. <laughs> I like to me. I like, I like to, I, I say, you know, my mom first gave it to me, but but no, she did. I had a version made. I'm so obsessed with it that I actually had a version made of it. And I'm seeing this one picture on Pinterest, like now, where she even has now like a blue sparkly cardigan over it. Like she really mm. needed more. It's just. Anyways, look up Kate Bush version Megasaur. <laughs> there will be pictures posted on Twitter. All, like all of her, like for example, the Dreaming music video to talk more about, and then the outfit that she wore for the 
infamous giant lizard performance of the dreaming and then of course oh she's like God. really has a face suit why has nothing to do with the song and like suspended in gasa she has her hair done like a chicken i would say she looks like a chicken in that but her makeup will always be this era is always flawless i will give her that and her hair color is so good oh my god mm-hmm. so like the sat in your lap video her hair color that is the and her hairstyle like the the style well i shouldn't be saying i had this whole thing where i'm like oh people reduce her to a body and now i'm like talking on her hair and makeup but she deserves props deserves props for it I'm, that you she know, does like her um her hair in this period is like such a good hair look she basically has like shag with waves and bangs it's just so good i've actually i have like really long waist like red hair and i've been like tempted to cut mine like that before but i'm like no it wouldn't look as good as hers because it's so straight if you look up the old gray whistle test interview her hair is just like perfection basically from the neck up she knew what she was doing (laughs) (laughs) and even like in the spending gas of performances and stuff like her makeup still there's the one with the marionette doll her makeup looks very actually like naturalistic there which is very rare for her she always has very heavy makeup anyways shout out to her hair and makeup in this period (laughs) or whoever was doing it Deserve, they just they weren't credited as personnel, but they deserve credit. So if you're if you if you're listening and you're the person who did hair and makeup during this period, please get in contact. Please get in contact, and <laughs> and I will pay you to do my hair and makeup daily. Um, like the there goes the tenor video, best hair and makeup. Oh my oh. god, like that video. It's interesting because that song that that was one of the immediate standouts for you. That mm-hmm. one, like, was all, it's always definitely, like, lower on my list. But the video really made me like it more. It's just such a fun video. It really is. Um, it is. It's a, and it's I like a that. little, little mini yeah, and, like, movie, you know? Exactly. It really is. And it's not, like, she always describes Army Dreamers in mini-movie. But to me, Army Dreamers is kind of unintentionally funny because it just reminds you of Private Benjamin. This movie about, like, an heiress who goes into the army. It's just, like, wearing 10 pounds of makeup and army outfit. I'm like, girl. But not so yeah, Sorry. There was a tenor video. It was just so playful and fun that it really made me like the video more. The, the song more, actually. And I really like, I like Del Palmer's The Getaway Driver. I like the dance moves. Mm-hmm. I like every, like the ending with her hair flying and the wind is really cool. Just love everything about it. Yeah, I think it's really one of her more underrated videos. I mean, it wasn't even included on the whole story. Yeah, like, well, no. it's included on the video on the video version. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but it's like a compilation of all of her, a tape of all her videos that came out like right before Hounds of Love was released. And it was included in there, so that's good. But yeah, since we're talking about There Goes the Tenor, do you want to talk more about your thoughts on the individual songs? Okay, so kind of like quick rundown of the song. So, I mean, let's see. There Goes a Tenor, uh, as I'll get to talk about in that episode, was one of the first that I latched onto. I mean, as far as like Sat in Your Lap was the first from the Dreaming that Wait, I ever I'm heard. Wait, I'm looking at rankings right now, feeling things that where we have to get out of my house, but I will hold my tongue. <laughs> I know. that I had a really, really hard time ranking stuff. Like, okay, Night of the Swallow is my favorite, favorite one. And that episode... As of this recording, I'm still editing that one, and I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Because <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be a little bit of a long episode, but it's gonna be really really cool. And yeah, yeah, um, you'll like it. It'll be worth it. But yeah, I mean, it's it hard to rank. I it's, feel it's really hard for me to hard rank. Hard to songs in this. They're also good because they're all good. It's just that the ones that are near the bottom, I either don't listen to as much because I have to be in a bit of a mood for it. But I don't like hate. Like a get out of my house excuse. Yeah, I don't. Or pull out the pin. Okay, I'm getting more and more angry. Sorry. <laughs> Although pull out the pin, like, uh, production-wise, 
is my favorite on the out al- one of my favorites on the album because she does like create this dense jungle atmosphere that really does yeah. draw you in like i had a dense real rough time way to put it yeah like, and that's like songs. all of the albums so just rich and dense and johnny yeah. ron flash online he said that about the dreaming on the the in the documentary to the bbc kate bush story he said every time i listen to it i hear something new and mm. honestly same here every single time and i've listened to it a lot so yeah but night of the swallows my favorite from this album, followed by There Goes a Tenor and Suspended in Gappa, because those were those two like stood out to me and helped me like helped me to get more into the album. Cause I went, okay, the, these are still a little bit strange, but they're at least I they've got something memorable about them, really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Sat in Your Lap. Oh my I remember the first time I ever heard Sat in Your Lap. First time I ever heard Sat in Your Lap was on the whole story. I was listening to it at work. I was working at my dad's office and I had on the whole story. <laughs> and I had it on and it got to the drums and then it like it ended and I had to fight really hard to not laugh because I thought it was one of the weirdest things I'd ever heard like oh my god what are they even saying they, what it just that da, 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 just well, that's like what Graham Thompson wrote about like sometimes people just laughed at this. They just you know. And I'll admit I was I I was one of those, but only once. Only once right. did I. And then after... It's almost, I think, it kind of sounds almost more like a nervous laughter. Like, we laugh at things that scare us. You know, we laugh at things we don't know how to process. Again, so uh, besides my Kate Bush impersonation non-career, I actually am a professional therapist, so FYI. But yeah, but so like we, we do, like, it's just normal for people to laugh at things that make them uncomfortable. And, and uh... they're not, like, mentally ready for and then after that, I do have all the love. All the love took me a bit to kind of get used to. But I, what I especially like about that song is the way that the sighs are almost used as a percussion in the song. Like they're, mm-hmm. it's, I'm guessing it was something that was probably sampled on the Fairlight and just like played rhythmically. And if you really listen, like you can hear like they're, they're falling like on particular beats. Like it, it works and it, it's really, yeah. really cool. Houdini took me a bit to get used to. I will never forget the first time I like really like got Houdini. I was listening to this on my iPod when I was in France. Like France was that that whole like 2006 was when I was really getting into Kate. And so I associate her a lot with like growing up, becoming a woman and discovering her music. And I remember listening to that song, like doing my homework and it, I was not expecting the, the, the screams at the with your spit still on my lips you oh, hit the God. water so i'm getting all i'm like okay the da 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 right da, da. it sounds pretty but it then. sounds so pretty and then it goes what do you spit and i'm like oh my yeah, god like, where'd I, that come from I, as i said screamo screamo and it's with that song something really important to bring up in terms of the anecdotes she again with her pushing her voice limit Apparently, he drank, like, a gallon. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like, these things, you're not sure, eat dairy, you're not sure milk. She drank, like, a pint, like, a quart of milk just to get her voice congested enough to do those wild screams. I love that. Yeah, and I know some for some singers, like, you, yeah, you're generally, they tell you when you sing, you're not supposed to get drink milk, you're not supposed to eat chocolate because it builds up mucus in your vocal cords. Blah, blah, blah. Well, we know she was eating a lot of chocolate that from what Paul doesn't, said, so. That doesn't really affect me very much, but... I know in others it does. Drinking a pint of milk, that's, yep. yeah, that's, that's actually it. 
Um, then after that, I, had, I do a pull out the pin. Uh, that one took me a little bit to kind of get used to again because like I was not expecting the screams of "I love life." Screams. There's so many screams here where you just are like, you don't expect it, and you're like, oh, I guess I have to turn the volume down. <laughs> like I don't know, or up. But yeah, first, yeah. Like, and you're like you're around people, you're like, oh shit, like God, turn it down. Um, I do really like leave it open. Again, I had such a hard time ranking these because although I do love leave it open, I love. The vocal effects. I love the effects that are used on her voice in this. That are just, she yeah. has so here many are, different. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. And then the a... thing at yeah, the end. Like, oh, I and, love this song so much. And oh, I love the ending. I cannot wait to get to that song when I start talking about the. Yeah, the we let the weirdness in there. Like oh, oh. oh yeah. talk about manifestos. We let the weirdness in is the manifesto for her whole career. Like I wrote a piece for um. For Stereo Gum last year about basically commemorating the 40th anniversary of the Kick Inside, and even though it's on the Kick Inside, the headline that letting the like was let it, like, about letting the weirdness in. like say that is as I see it like she let the weirdness into music and in like for women especially that's mm-hmm. the manifesto of her like that and those large men swallow about liberation are essentially like the manifesto of her of her career. And it's also the name of my mailbag segment <laughs> taken huh? just because of that. <laughs> I mean, as it should be. It's, uh, I mean, who wouldn't connect with those lines who's, like, been a weirdo in their life, you know? I know. But I do... But know... I also love Parm is in a... That's, it's just, I mean, that's, like, again, like, speaking to the darkness of this, this album is so dark and about... And she has said herself, as supposed to be about, like, the dark side of humanity. So, like, saying Harm is in us, where, you know... Whereas, nor... But in a, in a way that's not discordant. So, for example, on a... Like, a lot of her earlier works have really dark themes. Like, for example, All We Ever Look For, she's ba- like, it's about people wanting to die, but she's singing it super happily with really, like, cutesy music behind her. Whereas here, the lyrics are dark, and the music is dark, and you're drowning in the darkness, and I'm, I don't want to get out of the water. <laughs> mm. But I, it's interesting how, like, the content and production are actually matching, where something I have found to be kind of a trademark of her earlier work is a disconnect between what she's singing and how she's singing it. Then uh, after that, I do have Get Out of My House, but it's only because I don't, I have to be in the mood for that one. But when I am, oh, you better believe I turn that thing loud up, loud in my car. Yeah. And just pound along on the steering wheel, rah, kind of stuff. Yeah. I and do... that's an album, I mean, that's a song that like people will dismiss so much because of how fucking bonkers it is. I mean, she's literally hee-hawing. She's literally becoming a donkey. But the way that I viewed it, and it's like, I'll try to save some of this for the actual episode on the song, but it's about, <laughs> since it's about the body and about invasion, it's like I turned into the mule, turned into the donkey. Like, she literally has to, um, it's, a, it's a more eloquent synonym for move past, but move past the actual human form in order to express this, like, primal rage. Mm-hmm. And but people just hear hee haw and think it's funny. And I've made jokes about it because they're just like, I call her the hee haw bitch because there's a thing where like <laughs> the theme that went around when a star is born came out where like people called Lady Gaga the rah rah bitch. So as a joke, I started calling people the hee haw bitch. But like, <laughs> so it's like, but so, so I do call her the hee haw bitch as a joke, but like it's actually such a primal release it's such a catharsis when you actually get into it and don't just dismiss it but mm-hmm. some people are just like oh she's being donkey how silly 
I mean, that one definitely was memorable the first time I listened to it because it really felt like, yeah. and it, it wasn't just it was because ending. of the braying. It wasn't just because of that. Yeah. It was like the whole atmosphere felt, it felt like you were stuck in a horror movie. And after seeing exactly. The Shining, I yeah, it feels a lot like The Shining. I watched it a couple exactly. couple months ago. Yeah, I mean, like what an album, what an album closer, you know? Oh, like with, I know. It, it's funny because with her first four albums, she really closes with these masterpieces. On album one, you have the Kick Inside title track. Album two, you have Hammer Horror. Album three, you have Breathing. Album four, you have Get Out of My House. And these are all songs, especially Breathing and Get Out of My House, because of the production, where you feel like you're, as you said, like sucked in this nightmare sucked in vortex it's almost like if anyone is a really film, big film buff here has watched the movie possession from 1981 um mm. there's by andre zulowski starring is johnny almost feels like being in possession which is basically like a waking nightmare of a movie or like um touch, another one that's kind of like the waking nightmare of movies orson welles touch of evil but um like it feels like being in one of those movies or so it's just you feel like you're sucked in this vortex and the album ends and you're just like sitting there in silence having to process so much, having just, like, been hit with a giant tidal wave. Now, I do, like I said, I had a lot of trouble, like, ranking all these because I never skip a song. Like, like Never Forever, I never skip any song on The Dreaming. And it's actually the same thing with um, Hounds of Love. I don't skip any tracks on that one either. Mm -hmm. I only put the title track last because... Well, my feelings on the song have changed a little bit. I, I do love the atmosphere of it. I like the claustrophobic, scary, intense feeling of the title track. But it's more the cultural things, the cultural parts of that song that I'm a little bit iffy on. And totally. so that's why it's ranked where it is. However, I, I can see... Sure. I can see that she does have her heart in the right place. I just feel a little bit uh, when it's you're doing stuff with other cultures you don't really know a lot about. Right. She went to off. There's like that funny when her interview with on the Oakley Whistle Test where she's like, yeah, I talked to a few young people from Australia about the African culture. I'm like, you talked to like three white people about it. Um, so it is that thing of basically a white girl talking about something she doesn't know anything about but as you said her heart is in the right place and what I think is really interesting that title track is that it's just so ominous and dark and feels like its own little world mm-hmm. and so yeah there are racial issues and her with her writing about something she doesn't really know much about but and also for me I actually really enjoy watching the video I think it's really fun to watch I think that it cheapens the song I the song's power um because it's just so she's literally like playing uh limbo she's playing limbo it's funny <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. basic, you know so it just makes it kind of funny whereas the song you just listen to it especially on vinyl you feel like you're living in a nightmare it's so claustrophobic and enclosing mm-hmm. and that's where i think the racial problematic part kind of gets recuperated is that because the, the mood of the song is so sinister, and she's speaking from the point of view of the actual... Uh, co- this is supposed to be like an anti-colonial song about... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, basically about Australia and colonization of Aboriginal 
cultures. But and so she's speaking from a point of view of colonizers with an Australian accent. And I think that because it's so dark and sinister and she's singing from the point of view of the colonizers, it makes it a condemnation of the colonizers because it's showing how much darkness and damage they're inflicting upon the country. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's kind of, for me, what recuperates it from being like, oh, we have to like dismiss this song, which you're not doing. I think some people want to be like, we have to dismiss this song as problematic. I think that there's much more to it than that. I think that that is definitely sim- oversimplifying it. What's also interesting is that the even the title yeah, speaking of the, the the title track, that the title of the album, "The Dreaming," is a term from the Native Aborigine culture in Australia. Yeah, um, I used to actually be very puzzled by the album title. I knew that it was referring to Aboriginal culture, but because I'm not familiar with Native Australian religion, I went, mm, "Can I would go like I would try to read about it a little bit, and it just wasn't quite like getting it for me." But then I found this quote, actually, um, from the Wikipedia article for Dreamtime, which incidentally was the name of the quasi-instrumental released on the B-side of the title track when it came out as a single. And it says, the term is based on a rendition of the indigenous word Akaringa, used by the Aranda people of Central Australia, although it has been argued that it is based on a misunderstanding or mistranslation. Some scholars suggest that the word's meaning is closer to eternal, uncreated. Anthropologist William Stanner remarked, quote, why the black fellow thinks of dreaming as the nearest equivalent in English is a puzzle, and said that the concept was best understood by non-Aboriginal people as a complex of meanings. So what I take from that, so what I take from that is, well, each each song on this album is a like a puzzle. It's got all sorts of sounds and interesting things going on. And so each song is like its own little puzzle that where everything is not going to be revealed on first listen. And instead, it's up to us to listen to it loud, like she recommends, and to puzzle our way through it and figure out what she's talking about and figure out what's happening. And it's up to us to to do that for ourselves. She's going to give us like a little bit of a way in, but not very much. Yeah, I think that's a really great interpretation. And I think that it is definitely problematic that she's using a term for her album Nate, title that is from a culture that she doesn't really know or understand. And like, she, I don't think, I bet she didn't even realize what you just talked about based on what she said regarding the song and everything. But I think, but I just think that also just really fits the, the title fits the album really well, because as I've said so many times, it's like some kind of fever dream. Mm-hmm. It's really fits. And especially with the album cover where it says the dreaming, you have her like looking away, almost like she's daydreaming about something. It just really works. It's not Ariana, Ariana Grande who's literally wearing brown face <laughs> and pretending to be Latina. You know, like it's not, mm-hmm. it's, not Lana Del Rey wearing a headdress and calling herself a chola, which is a term for Latin American term, basically saying she's Latin American when she's a white girl. Uh, you know, so I'm like, I'm like, I can let Kate, I can give Kate a pass in this. For me, in terms of like you're you were talking at how you feel about the songs, and I chimed in, but I feel like in terms of how I feel with the individual songs, 
my top three are Night of the Swallow, Get Out of My House, and Pull Out the Pin. All of them, to me, are masterpieces. I would not call their goals, sorry, Cecily, I would not call their goals and a masterpiece. I do like it, and but I wouldn't call it a masterpiece. Um, and Pull Out the Pin just blows my mind. I, but around, like there was this period in 2015 where I was working for an abusive boss and I would always listen to the dreaming before get, like, as I was getting ready for work and literally scream well, when one of my roommates weren't around I would scream I love a life into the mirror because I was so angry mm-hmm. it just, like, fit. so I was listening to dreaming a lot then and so it was really cathartic and I love that with Paul the Pin she, it's also a condemnation of imperialism she's talking about um, Vietnam War from the perspective of the Vietnamese, which mm-hmm. many people would not do at that time or at any time, you know, she's basically said, it's kind of anti-American I mean, I wouldn't say totally anti-American song but she talks, they talk about the way that they perceive Americans as being threatening and Yeah, he's big and pink and not like me Exactly, Where so she's othering the white person as opposed to othering the person of color which is really cool Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so so next we have Leave It Open, which I think is just an astounding masterpiece in every way. It's like it's basically she's one thing I'm gonna point out, this is a booty shaker, guys. This is a club this is a banger. Like I have partied to this. I'm I truly have. I'm gonna say like take a few sh- not to be a bad influence, but like have some drinks, dance to this, shake your butt. It works. It's just, I just love the trippiness and the theme of expanding consciousness, like over this really thick beat, and she's basically rapping. And I just love <laughs> all the kind of the back back mass vocals. And mm-hmm. um, oh, I do too. I love that. Yeah, and like harm is in us. Just the darkness, like it's about expanding consciousness, but also like what you find when you expand it might be kind of unpleasant. And so, um, like honestly, like this then followed by title track. Like I will say from experience. Club bangers, like you like though that's like music you shake your butt. Like I've like gone down, not gone down, especially like I've like danced my butt off to this album before. No, I feel like up until like all the love, it's like yeah, banger, banger. Like I can dance, and all the love is kind of sad. Mm-hmm. And speaking of all the love, um, so I like to send in gas a lot, not as much as other fans seem to. All the what's really interesting is that all the love, the first time I ever listened to it was like the standout for me. I don't really know why. I just, I mean, there, I know why I love it. I think it's, there's so many things I love about it. I'll go more into on the actual album, episode, I mean, art song episode. Yep. But something about it, something about the sound of it, I like things that are spooky. And there's just something so spooky about it with the choir boy. And what I really like is that weepy vocal effect. So the way that, um, the way that Graham Thompson describes it in Under the Ivy is, where are we? All right, yeah. He says, well, what you were talking, how you find her vocals on this album so captivating and that she's basically like really using her vocals mm-hmm. to embody what she's saying. And so what he said is that it is an exact marriage of vocal sounds and song subjects to be heard on the sobbing chorus of All the Love in the desperate roar of I love life on Pull Out the Pin mm-hmm. in the soaring tension of Night in the Swallow and the primal scream that's get out of my house. So with all the love. I've talked about some early episodes, and I think I talked about this in Empty Bullring. Um, I know I talked about Empty Bullring, and some other ones. She has this thing called, like, that I call, like, her weepy voice, mm-hmm. where it almost sounds like she's crying as she sings, and this, to me, is the song where she 
but that is like perfected and it just makes it so deeply moving like she's literally crying over loss and over regret and that's just really powerful and I don't know if I already said it but if I didn't say it again I find this the superior both this song all the love and this one's work are essentially talking about regretting that you didn't show people enough love in the past and but to me this song is like 10,000 times more powerful than this one's work like I like this one's work there are times it's made me cry it moves me I find it more of a traditional ballad like a song that I can believe someone who wasn't Kate Bush wrote and performed whereas the only this could only be a Kate Bush song Mm. um so I really prefer this this I I always whatever people say I love this one's work I'm like you should check out all the love to me, I think it captures a really essential part of human experience in terms of that, the quote is once worth, like all the things I should have said that I never said, is essentially the theme of all the love. I just think that that's a really important part of the human experience. Like she's not writing about like, oh, this, this breakup happened and I'm sad about it. She's writing about this more existential despair, which I find really moving. Right. And then another song that is close to my heart for sure, is Houdini. When I initially listened to this album, I really, like, was not into it. I Mm. really wasn't. I wasn't either. I don't know. Yeah, you said that, too. And you said you remembered when it clicked with you. I don't remember when it clicked with me. (laughs) When it clicked, it clicked. And, I mean, it may have been part... So, like, the thing with it is I find it just one of the most... You wouldn't expect this from a song of a woman screaming... But I find it one of the most romantic songs ever that there is. Just like, does it get more powerful? So basically, the story is that um, Houdini was like anti-spiritualist. Mm-hmm. But then when he died, his wife like held seances to try to connect with him after his death. And does it get more powerful than discarding all your past disbelief in the supernatural to try and contact your loved one from the dead? That's just like such so powerful to me and then the line with the kiss I pass the key and feel your tongue teasing and receiving the most eloquent beautiful lines I've ever heard I've I've ever heard mm-hmm. um it just to me it's just epic romance like the fact that you love this person so much that you throw away all your preconceived notions of what is and isn't sensible to reconnect with them so that song to me is just like hashtag relations of gold I don't know but like it's just so deeply moving and it, I think its romanticism gets overlooked because of the guttural screaming and because the production is so unique. But mm-hmm. I think it's like, like if I was going to make a Valentine's Day playlist, this would be at the top, honestly. And in part because my uh, Kate Bush loving ex ma- made me homemade uh, key necklace that I still wear all the time. Because mm-hmm. it's like, even though that love is gone, to me, what it represents is when I wear that necklace, it's literally like close to my heart and it just represents having love close Mm -hmm. to my heart and the feeling of having been loved at some point, the feeling of love. And that song represents that to me too. Um, And also I love that key necklace because both of our, because I love, because I love dreaming so much. So for me, it's about like basically finding a way to represent the dreaming in my everyday life. And I feel kind of naked when I'm not wearing that necklace. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, my top three, Night of the Swallow, I won't even t- 
touch on here because there's a, I talked endlessly about it on the actual episode about it. Yes. I think it's, as I said, manifesto for the whole album and of her whole career and my favorite song of hers of all time, which is saying a lot. And then Get Out of My House, my second favorite song of hers of all time. I love that a lot, too. Um, my Yeah, my top... Like I, it's funny, so I can't rank the songs in The Dreaming. Like I really can't, besides those top three. But um, maybe leave it open to top four. But or how far you, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. See, but this is why I, I had such a hard time make, doing that. But I went, I'm just going to try and do this. I also admittedly did these rankings while I was waiting for my car to be inspected and I was bored. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to like, keep the songs. I'm telling you, anyone listening, shake your booty to leave it open. It is like, I cannot, I have, I have partied to that. Let's just leave it at that. I have partied to it. Let's, <laughs> quite a bit. Like my, so it's funny because I can't rank my favorite songs of Dreaming, but in terms of my favorite Kate Bush songs, I can, like my, I can rank my top mm-hmm. five, which would be Night Swallow, Get Out of My House, Hello Earth, Breathing, oh, Breathing before Hello Earth, sorry, Breathing, then Hello Earth, and then a tie for fifth between Cloud Busting and um, Hammer Horror. So that's, yeah, I know. So that's my spiel of my top five Kate Bush songs. <laughs> Mine are slowly being revealed. <laughs> slowly. From Beat, a free magazine from HMV. From 1982, Kate's least commercial album. The Dreaming strained the patience of her public with some eccentric attempts to convey the mystic wisdom of primitive cultures, the title track, a shrieking panic attack of a single, Sad in Your Lap, and an overall lapse of her customarily exquisite sense of melody. Three years later came Hounds of Love and All Was Forgiven. But yeah, but this album is just so special. Oh, if anything, gosh, yes. it represents a historic fashion moment, most importantly. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we pretty much covered everything about the dreaming, and it's yeah, this is going to be quite a season. So it doesn't matter because there's a lot to cover. There and is. People, I mean, people love this album. I think people want to hear people talking about it. Indeed. There's not much good talk about it. Cough, website that's not be named, Cough. I know. I think I know which website you mean, but I will not say their name on air. <laughs> yeah, they don't. The thing is, the way media works, you won't know because I've written for stuff before. Like, the more clicks they get, the more money they make. So, you, if, if you see something and you read it and you're like, this is going to make me angry, don't read it because then you're actually going to give them money. But I'm just really grateful this album exists. Um, me too. And as I said, like, when I talked to Kate fans, overwhelmingly, I mean, okay, overwhelmingly the favorite towns of love, but amongst maybe me amongst the Kate Bush fans with the best taste <laughs> so Jean is the favorite um and it just I I just am so glad it exists that the world that it creates exists I can't really think of anything more powerful or beautiful created in music I really can't I mean I, as I said this is like a pretty much a tie of my favorite album with the Marble Index by Nico but for that it's almost more because that's like been my favorite album about 15 Dreaming, I feel like, might have more of an emotional impact on me, honestly. Um, so it's my real favorite album. So it's just, it's very important, not just to me, but like to anyone who has ever needed to feel liberated, anyone who's needed something to show for their miserable life, anyone who's needed to let the weirdness in. This, mm-hmm. is, this album is for you. She called it 
her She's Going Mad album. And a lot of us are going mad. So we need this album. We need it. As I said, like when I was going through a really tough period of my life, I would just scream the lyrics and it was great. And we need that. I think if more people acknowledge their own darkness, we would be better off. Yeah, as long as they know how to work on it instead of just acting on it. <laughs> of course. But yes, you know what I mean. people. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the dreaming. This is going to be Oh my gosh, this is going to be such a fun season cuz this this is my favorite album. This is your favorite album and holy crap, I've already started and it's like your favorite album. I've started editing these episodes, some of these episodes and I'm still continuing to record stuff. It's going to be quite the journey. It's going really going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. This Yay! Album is it really is. It's mm-hmm. really like you start literally from the quest for knowledge and like just not knowing what to do with your life and sat in your lap to literally turning into an animal. Mm-hmm. at the end of because transcending that is the word i was looking for before oh I yes mm-hmm. basically i'm saying she basically has to transcend the human form to be free be, as a woman is something really powerful especially that is um yeah but yeah like you literally go from distressed grad student to, to donkey <laughs> <laughs> yeah more so than any of her other albums for sure it's just, yeah, it's so cool. It's just, such, I mean, all, all of her albums feel like very much cohesive albums to me, but this one definitely is the most, like, cohesive album as opposed to collection yes. of songs, even though they all feel cohesive. But, like, her like her first two, you can tell, like, yes, these are collections of songs that she's work, been working on for a while. This feels like the most, like, one cohesive piece. And that's why it's so hard to rank them because they all interconnect with one another. Like, I if know. I'm listening to music on Shuffle and I hear one song from it, I usually will like be like, I gotta go back and listen to the album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just they're all interlocked in my head. Well, and actually, last thing I'll kind of say about this album, it's worth noting that there are no live vocal performances of anything from the Dreaming. No, don't don't remind me. Oh, like I know I hate to remind you, and it hurts me to say it, but. If anyone who lives in New York City ever sees a girl with really long red hair who's dressed kind of like a witch crying <laughs> on the subway, it's me thinking about the fact that nothing from the dreaming has ever been performed by. Feel free to say hello and comfort me. I like think about that so often. And rumor has it that apparently she considered sat in your lap mm-hmm. or before the dawn, like in the very early stages. Can you imagine? I just... I can't really imagine anything from this album being performed live. Me neither. At all. Because just like, how would you reproduce the sounds from it? It doesn't make sense. But where there's a will, there's a way. And like, the thing is, we talked about in the breathing episode, that's the song that you just cannot imagine performed live at all. Because it's so Mm -hmm. production heavy. But she managed to do it in 1986. So, Kate, come on, please. (laughs) Give me something to show for my miserable life. Would you even break my wings like a swallow? She has broken my wings by not... Yeah. But not the perfect life! The hee-haw bitch not releasing DVD <laughs> has broken my wings. But, <laughs> and then, plus, I'm just, I'm not even going to give her any respect. I'm only going to call her the hee-haw bitch until she releases DVD. That's all I'm going to do. Nothing from dreaming ever lies. Just, you know, gotta take a moment to cry. Gotta take a I moment. I know. I like, there's literally been moments where I'm like listening to it, and it just hits me. No, because even every other album, you've had one song, at least. Just one. Yeah. Even. But, like, because uh, like, yeah like when she did the princess trust concert where she formed the wedding list was like dreaming era like 
I don't know, could have gotten some sat in your lap, maybe? I don't all the things all the things she could have done that she never did. Mm-hmm. We can't ruminate too much on that. We yeah. can't ruminate on DVD and I will never stop. Thank you, Kate. See how it. And on that note, <laughs> well, we're gonna close out this episode here. And next week I'm gonna be putting out the first song. I'm talking with well, actually talking with four people, but then there's also uh, added input from a fifth fan. So there, I guess there's a total of five fans. I'm going to have a total of five fans for next week's episode about Sat in Your Lap. And yeah, it's it's a stuffed song. Might as well have a s- episode stuffed with guests. That's so there I you go. Thinking. I was like, the song is so stuffed. That it, I also thought of one other thing I wanted to say. Oh, what's that? I'm talking this album. I just really want to challenge the narrative that is in every single piece that people push ever that is even in under the Ivy, the whole, which I'm going to call the pathway to hounds of love nonsense. Discourse. Oh God. But under the Ivy quote says these tracks in particular plotted a path towards the sounds and techniques. She would explore further on hounds of love and then goes through like each song is like points to how it's, relates to a hands love song and then also like he calls it barely contained hysteria very gendered term there brian bass said the dreaming to me was just massive noise i would say that about waking the witch but okay constantly the dreaming even in the bbc kate bush documentary is constantly just described as like she needed to get the dreaming out of her system so that she could create the masterpiece that was Hounds of Love. And the dreaming was just her learning how to use all this technology. But as I said earlier, this is not someone just throwing stuff at the wall and saying what sticks or else it would sound a mess. It doesn't, this is controlled. This is not chaos. This is controlled chaos. And to me, and you could absolutely quote me on this, I have no shame in my opinion, absolutely nothing on the ninth wave. And I love the ninth wave. I love Hounds of Love. I do. I love it so much. I think it's a masterpiece. Not one, nothing on how, on on um, the ninth wave is as interesting or experimental as one minute of anything on this album. You can quote me. Nothing on how, nothing on the ninth wave. Because everyone always goes off about the ninth wave is her most experimental and complex work. Did you guys hear the dreaming? No, you didn't. Or you didn't care. Or you were laughing at the hee-hawing. I'm going to say it again because I can never, it needs to be heard. Nothing from the ninth wave is as experimental or interesting as one minute of this album. Just putting that energy out there to combat all the people, tough, straight white men, male music critics, men, males, redundant, whatever. I'm tired. Putting that energy (laughs) out there. And if anyone wants to fight me, I'm absolutely ready to fight. And I will. Yeah, anyone who calls the dreaming like pathway to hounds of love, I've got my, I've got, I'll put my boxing gloves on. I'm ready. We'll fight. We'll throw hands. Bye. No, I know what you mean about that. Like, yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Everything you said. (laughs) Yeah. You're just not going to fight people. I'm, you I'm, I'm a girl who went to public school in New York City. I know how to deal with shit. I'm small, but I will kick your butt if you say that about (laughs) the dreaming. This is on the record. You can keep this in the episode. My mm-hmm. name is Zoe. You can ask if you think this stuff dreaming, you find me and I will kick your butt. And on that note, adios. Mm-hmm. 
If you have a favorite Kate Bush song that you would like to talk about for a future episode, here's where you can contact me. You can email me, kbcast at linkmedia.com. That's link with an E. You can contact me through my website, kbcast.linkmedia.com. You can find me on Twitter at StrangeKateCast and on Facebook, facebook.com slash katebushpodcast. Also, we now have a hotline. So if you call this number and leave us a message, we will consider playing it on a future episode. You can call and talk about briefly your favorite Kate Bush song, or if you just want to ramble about how much you love Kate Bush's music, here's the phone number, 1-757-349-6886. That's 1-757-349-6886. Join us next week for a discussion of the first song from The Dreaming and the first single, Sad in Your Lap. See everybody then. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.